This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To view faculty disclosures or to learn how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Uh, good evening, my name is Jay Raman and I am a professor of urology at uh, Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's uh, my pleasure to host another uh, of the Office of Education podcast, with this specific podcast being part of our AUA Expert, Expert Exchange podcast series, Discussions in GU Cancers. Today's specific title is How to Safely and Properly Administer Immunotherapies, and it's really my pleasure to have our guest, Dr. David Morris, uh, join us here today. Uh, Dr. Morris is a president and co-director of Advanced Therapeutic Center for Urology Associates in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, he's part of a group which is really, I, I think, a great um, uh, additive benefit to our podcast series, which is his group has been giving uh, immuno-oncology therapies for a variety of different indications uh, for a number of years now. And so it's really beneficial from our behalf to have somebody in the space of urology who has been uh, administering these therapies. So David, first of all, thank you so much. Really our pleasure to have you here today and, and you're and in advance. I appreciate your expertise. Well, thank you very much for thinking of us. And, and I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the function of my entire team, which I'd be remiss if I didn't point out, I'm not the only one starting IVs, giving therapy. Um, certainly we do a lot of patient identification and monitoring, but we have a team of APPs that are well integrated with the program, nursing, research teams that kind of led our experience, and and also Dr. Uh, Tom J. Ram, who's kind of the co-director of those services with myself. Great. Um, and, and I think, you know, your acknowledgement up there really, I think, um, highlights perhaps some of the things we're going to cover, and, and I'm going to sort of summarize them and what our learning objectives for today are. And, and one of them is really to understand what are some of the barriers that are associated with the, the, the current immuno-oncology treatments, particularly with regards to proper administration and, and uh, within, an, uh, within an infusion suite setting. Uh, the second is really how do you develop an infrastructure to not only monitor, but treat these patients for uh, treatment effect, but also side effects and complications. And then certainly identifying the best candidates uh, or the optimal candidates for this treatment and the pros and cons of therapy. So, David, maybe let's just start off here and, and um, really broad question. Let's start 20,000 feet. Just tell our audience a little bit. You know, we're going to be talking about immuno-oncology and IO therapy. What are we talking about here? And, and maybe give us the background. Sure. At least from a urology perspective, I think IO is this broad category that covers a lot of what we've historically done. I mean, urologists were probably some of the first adopters of immunoecology with BCG therapy. Um, but the newer directed therapies have really been small molecules, which are more immune modulators. Probably the biggest 
indication group for urologists in G-Oncology is uh, PD-1 or PD-1 ligand access sort of medications. Um, and some of the advanced prostate cancer, there's uh, vaccine uh, treatments that rely on the immune response of the host. So I think that as a class, it's, a, it's all of those kind of combined together. So when people mention IO, most of us are thinking about infusion therapies, but there are certainly other oral kind of IO type therapies that we give in combination or BCG, which we've given intravesically for years. And, and tell me a little bit, I mean, th this is something that urologists have actually been involved with for, for some time, right? Uh, yes. I mean, obviously we're not leading the way on third line uh, advanced urothelial cancer trials. Those are typically housed within medical oncology because those patients have been under their care for some time. But I think urologists understand that we can often harness the natural body immune system to fight cancer. And in prostate cancer, kind of the first available vaccine, Cipulusal T, really kind of brought the idea of we're going to use the host immune system to try to slow the cancer progression. So uh, urologists have dabbled in IO therapy for a long time. It's just now IO really encapsulates sort of this idea of an infusion suite. And, and that's a little bit of a, a shift for most urologists, but but it's certainly something we're very capable of understanding and delivering the therapy. And, and maybe, you know, the, the last sort of 20,000 foot um, question for you here is um, maybe just contrast a little bit. How is IO therapy maybe different than, uh, for example, conventional chemotherapy? And, and maybe what's, what's the big difference and how we should think about the mechanism of action? Sure. So, I, I, I mean, I love that conversation with a parent, this, you know, a patient, the cytotoxic chemotherapy uh, that we're delivering really kills all, all cells in the body. It's just the dosing is in this narrow range where if you have a cancer dividing quickly, it tends to kill more of the cancer cells. Iotherapy is more about unmasking the, the body's ability to recognize that there are potentially uh, cancer cells there within that need to be treated and, and recognized as a non-normal tissue. And then therefore that own hum, human response or humoral response, whether it's T cells and B cells, can all basically motivate themselves to, to act and recognize that as some sort of non-normal tissue and then attack it. Uh, so that's kind of the easy explanation for a patient. They understand I'm just turning on your immune system so that it can fight cancer cells, which tend to suppress immune function. Now, the side effects we can all easily explain by when we activate your immune system, if it gets out of control and, and overly attacks your normal tissues, then you have downstream consequences. So patients then start to grasp that's why you're looking for certain immune effects on my body is because my immune system's ramped up and ready to go. So you started off early on and, and you know, obviously when I was introducing you, your, your group is one of, of several groups that has really been um, involved in this space for some time. And, and you talked about the importance of your team, uh, but maybe take us through a little bit. What are some of the operational issues that maybe that, that urologists in general will face, or maybe your group faced just getting out of the gate as you started to go down this realm? Sure. I think the biggest one is the demystifying what IO therapy and infusion suites are. Uh, we're not used to that as urologists. We've not thought about these, you know, do you need a special chair? Do you need a special room? Do I have to have all this stuff set up? I don't have to have a crash cart available right next door to the patient. And so just the idea that, you know, an infusion suite can be no more than a regular exam room that has a chair where someone's willing to sit for the amount of time it takes to get that infusion. And outside of that, and the idea that someone on your staff is very likely capable of placing an IV, 
whether it's one of your nurses, one of your APPs, let's face it, you don't particularly want a urologist placing an IV, but honestly, anyone who can place an IV and have venous access is capable of having an infusion suite. Um, and so I think that that was kind of the first big hurdle is just recognizing it's nothing, it's our infusion suites are nothing fancy. They don't have different wallpaper. They are literally a clinic room that just happens to have a chair with a pole, very cheap to buy. And, and now that we move to the infusions that are run off of a pump, like some of these IO therapies, we have an infusion pump, which is basically a simple IV pump with a bag that hangs and line to basically hook up to somebody's IV, a peripheral IV. And, and that's your infusion suite. You're ready to go. So it's, it's really fascinating when you sort of explain it like that, because it does almost demystify or debunk what, what would seemingly be a, a very steep um, a steep mountain to climb, right? When you say starting an infusion suite, but but clearly it sounds like the infrastructure that one needs is is actually perhaps far more simple than what we would think of just intuitively. And I think if we were giving cytotoxic chemotherapy, it, it, your infusion suite might need more. But for most of these therapies, they're given over about 30 minutes in the clinic um, these are not hour long infusions that require all day or an all of an afternoon. So you're not sucking up a room where you need to be seeing and treating and doing E&M visits on patients. But if you have a room that might be underutilized, you can devote 30 minutes or an hour to that room for it to be an infusion suite. So we don't have specific suites built out. We took our natural footprint and kind of deemed a couple of rooms. These are potential infusion rooms. So we block those off if we have people coming in for dosing on those days. Hmm. And, and maybe a, a practical question I would ask you is, so you, you have the, the physical administration of a certain drug or therapy. How in your group do you manage um, the, the observation, whether it's 15, 30, 45 minutes after the infusion is complete when you're looking for maybe early AEs? Is that done in, in your setup in the same room or do you have a separate sort of uh, waiting room or recovery room that you, that you sort of monitor these patients thereafter? So I think it would depend on site. I mean, in some of the research sites, we have them stay in the research suite. We don't need the suite for the next patient, so they can just sit there and wait. If you're in a busier clinic, you can certainly put them back in a sub-waiting room, um, just like you might do for if you're giving certain testosterone injection formulations need monitoring. Um, uh, theoretically, the first time you give an ADT injection, you monitor them. We often put those patients back in the waiting room, and they have basically a staff member across the desk who can say, if there's any problems, that's who you yell at. And then they come and get us from the back. Okay. Um, so I don't think it requires any special direct eyeball the entire time, as long as they're on site and they're available to get in touch with you if there's a problem. So we've talked a little bit so far about, you know, broadly, what is IO therapy? Uh, you've really helped sort of simplify operationally. Maybe it's not quite as challenging to, to get up off the ground, especially as you alluded to, to, to certain therapies that we could give. So now that sort of leads us to maybe the next area, which is how do you, how do you identify these patients? How do you, how do you screen the patients? How, how do you know which patients theoretically would be appropriate for such therapies? And maybe that's too broad a question because maybe the answer is different based upon the disease that we're looking at. So, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll take a stab at it from myself, just learning. And I'll be honest, I'm no means an expert uh, on all of these indications other than I'm smart enough to at least know that many of these indications, when things get bad, my antenna twitch and I realize I need to be looking for something else that I can do for the patient. And it seems like as soon as you nail down here are the indications I'm looking at, 
you've missed two FDA announcements where a mm -hmm. label has changed and you now have a new product. So instead of trying to narrow down exactly on what the pure indications for enrollment in the trials were, I just think high level and, you know, probably say you might be a candidate for IO and then we dive in to say for sure which one you might need and what the dosing schedule is. They're all a little different, but we've been doing, you know, kind of PD-1 IO therapy for um, clinical trials. And some of those have moved straight from tiles to already approved now in the last few months. Uh, but I think the first kind of one that moved into urology, there was a metastatic advanced disease setting in bladder cancer, urothelial, but those mostly are not our patients. So when it really started to take note in most clinics was CIS, refractory disease, non-muscle invasive. So that indication for certain IO therapies really, it's easy to capture those patients. You're you're theoretically seeing them fairly often, and you've already run out of things that you're thinking you can give. So non-muscle invasive disease, CIS, it's refractory. Certainly the adjuvant indications for cystectomy with high-risk disease or nodal involvement is kind of the extrapolation from metastatic urothelial disease and moving slightly earlier. And I certainly think when you get to adjuvant therapy for disease recurrence for metastatic or muscle invasive bladder cancer, those are high risk patients. We know from the very beginning, they're high risk. And so if you're not giving them chemo or they don't qualify, then you're thinking, all right, maybe this is somebody who needs IO therapy and you check. And sure enough, there's now an indication for that. So non-muscle invasive, muscle invasive bladder are both two um, from a kidney cancer perspective, a newer trial that's kind of led to approval now is looking at adjuvant therapy for high risk after nephrectomy. And so that's a big patient population with T3 disease Potentially not everybody needs it, but it's certainly worth having the conversation with all those patients about we might have a medicine that can delay your recurrence better than some of the medicines that they used historically. Um, and so that's kind of a new indication for urologists to think about. And then lastly, prostate cancer. And I think it's not quite there as a broad indication for prostate cancer, but probably the coolest IO indication that's available is one that's tissue agnostic. It doesn't care what type of cancer you have, but the FDA did approve certain IO therapies for people with high tumor mutational burden or TMB or what we call MSI high uh, patients. And those are noted by genetic testing, by somatic testing of the tissue. And so that can identify a small subset of prostate cancer patients who might be candidates for IO therapy currently as we sit right now. And the IO indications for prostate might change down the road because there's a lot of investigation of th these agents in prostate cancer, which is obviously the most common gene malignancy that we deal with. So, I mean, I, I think you, you hit on um, so a few key points. I mean, you know, several of these indications are what I would think of intuitively in the wheelhouse of the urologist, right? So BCG refractory non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, high risk non-metastatic kidney cancer, right? We follow those patients anyway in our clinics. Um, certainly prostate cancer, uh, as they go along this spectrum of those that maybe have failed definitive local therapy, and we, we have, all of us have those in the practice. And so it really seems like what you're, you're highlighting is um, areas of, of the cancer continuum that are very much in the wheelhouse of what urologists would treat and frankly, what we see and, and maybe what our patients would be happy for us to see because they've already developed connections with us over time. Is that, is that sort of an accurate statement? I, I think that that, if you lean on the indications where you're managing the patient and you have a relationship with them historically, no one is going to fault you for continuing that cancer care and offering something that may be new to you, but 
you know the patient, you've been with the patient for a long time, they trust you, you're not having to send them to another facility. So there's nothing wrong with as long as you feel comfortable in monitoring and learning about that's who you should reach out to first. We don't need an indication that's third line metastatic urothelial cancer. Could I find those patients? Probably, but most of those patients are being managed by medical oncologists and very well. And so they don't need me to latch onto that indication as that's what I'm going to use IO therapy for. And IO therapy, I didn't even mention kidney cancer for metastatic or really locally advanced kidney cancer. IO therapy has been the forefront of, of therapy for kidney cancer and RCC for a while. It's just so complicated that most of us have not jumped into that indication. And there are some great combination trials. I mean, the, the medications look fantastic, but they come with all these monitoring issues and the concern that maybe those aren't patients that are on our clinic already. And so if somebody's getting seen at the hospital with newly metastatic disease and they're sent to a urologist and a medical oncologist, I am totally fine with that patient continuing with medical oncology. That's the right thing potentially in that situation. But if it's somebody I've managed for the last three, four years, I just took their bladder out. They have a relationship with me and my staff. And honestly, I think as long as I can do it safely, there's nothing magical about pushing the medication through an IV. Mm -hmm. It's all the magic is on the identification the billing and coding, and then the follow-up to make sure that they're tolerating it well. And as long as you do those three things, it doesn't matter what your training was, what your the letters are after your name, you're, you're doing the right thing for that patient. Sure. No, I think that that's very well phrased. So um, maybe one practical question is, um, it, when one is looking to, let's say, branch into this, any one of the domains we just talked about, how do you, do you look at sort of volume to date? I mean, how, how do you sort of recommend practices that are starting to delve into this space to, to judge their volumes or, or um, sort of the, the nuts and bolts of, do we have enough patients to actually go into this space and, and treat this disease? So I think for a lot of, I mean, if you're a group of two or three physicians in rural cities of America, it, it's probably not going to behoove you to try this. The volume's not going to be there to support the number of patients you need to do and do it correctly. Uh, but having said that, there's a lot of oncology in the community that is not very GU focused. So if you, there's no reason that you couldn't be a three doctor urology group in a rural area. And if you take ownership of GU oncology, you may see just as much GU oncology as your community oncologist next door. Um, and so you shouldn't feel bad about it if you have a passion, but if you're in a larger city and you have plenty of good options, I think the easiest things are the ones that you mentioned earlier that are already in your office. So if you run a billing coding evaluation to see how many people did we give BCG to last year? And then you just back calculate on a napkin to say, oh, half of those might be recurrent disease. That gives you a rough idea who maybe CIS would be in their codes. Um, same thing for kidney. If you look at the number of nephrectomies that were done at your site, you can kind of estimate how many might be high risk and might need adjuvant therapy. Cystectomies, how many might be candidates. And you, can, you need specific criteria for they don't fit cisplatin eligibility, but you can easily say, well, if we did 100 cystectomies for our large group last year, probably half of those are going to be cisplatin ineligible just based on our history. And so there's a big chunk of patients who might qualify for adjuvant therapy. So, I mean, if it gets to the point where you're treating one patient every two years, that's probably not going to be worth it. But mm -hmm. if you've got a handful of patients and these are ongoing therapies, so if you start somebody on therapy now and you add somebody two months from now, then you've got two people on therapy. So as long as you're looking at it in that way, I think you'll recognize that there's enough volume to learn. And the problem is it's only going to become more. So if you just say, oh, I'm not going to mess with it now because it's not that many patients. Well, next year it's going to be more patients. Is So part of the problem is just you've got to start with the passion that I want to treat, manage 
all these cancer patients as long as I can. And then I think we're more like the subspecialties that do that from beginning diagnosis to end. Sure. So, so we've been talking a lot about sort of that arm of it, which is um, being able to, to treat uh, these patients across the continuum, being able to offer them therapies uh, even beyond, you know, just surgery uh, or diagnosis. And then the corollary to this, of course, is, okay, if we're going to be giving these therapies, uh, how do we do so safely? And uh, how do we, you know, when they, when they have issues, when they have adverse events, how do we manage them? So maybe take me through a little, little bit about this. What, what should, now we've gone down the road, we're, we're going to be treating these patients. What should we be doing to monitor them? What are some of the, the baseline studies? Um, what are the, some of the discussions we should have with the, the patients or their caregivers in that regard? Okay. So I think what we did was immediately went to our oncology colleagues in town and the NCCN guidelines and tried to build our own little program that mirrored what was going on in the community. As long as you do that, you have a leg to stand on that you're offering the standard of care, but also you're going to feel more comfortable that I'm not making this up on my own. You don't want to reinvent the wheel, but the NCCN is a great jumping off point. It talks about baseline lab evaluations, blood counts, thyroid levels, cortisol. Um, those sort of tests can evaluate renal function, liver function, and you've got a baseline. And then from there, you're basically doing intermittent monitoring with labs prior to dosing um, to make sure that there's not something alteration-wise that you need to hold a dose. And, and that's kind of the easiest. From the baseline, it's really just patient. You fit inside the label and it's indicated. And our baseline labs look safe. And as long as those two things are in place, then we move to the patient and talk with the patients about what are our goals of therapy? Uh, you know, is this purely curative or is this something that's delaying treatment? I mean, we want them on board so that they understand what kind of the end point is. And then from there, we really do a lot of upfront just on what are the side effects that we need to look for? Um, maybe not like chemo, like your hair's falling out, but more just, hey, if we start these medications, the immune related AEs are really what make most of us nervous. There's fairly common AEs like fatigue and tiredness with any cancer therapy. We can manage around those, and there's uh, cancer.org, American Cancer Society has a lot of really good help PDFs that you can give to patients on how to deal with side effects of chemo and cancer care. But when you get to immune-related, there's NCCN guidelines for those, Society of Im Immunotherapy and Cancer. There's several things that have patient handouts so that they know what to look for and when to alert us to problems. And then from there, that's kind of your jumping off point. Um, I think after that, we're doing routine labs with every visit where they're doing administration. And, and often we're handing that first ones with the physician. But after that, sometimes we have the APP and we're alternating. You can set up telemedicine visits in between where you're doing direct patient outreach and asking about rashes and joint pain and trouble breathing or anything like that, upset stomach. The, the itises that we're looking for that have to do with any body system getting inflamed, that's really what we're kind of paying attention to. Um, and so on the front end, it's labs and patient counseling and then being proactive on asking about side effects so that they know here's the card to call. If there's a problem, here's who I reach out to. And I will say for all my partners who are not giving immune therapy in my clinic, it's pretty basic. If they call in the middle of the night and they say that they're having these problems, the answer is if you're really having a problem, you go to the hospital. And the ER is, is there down with immune-related AEs because iotherapy is in the community. So they know kind of what medications you're on. As long as the patient carries their card, it says I'm on some sort of iotherapy. And that's what the oncologists are doing. If they end up at the hospital, 
it's not the hospital, it's not the oncologist who's running straight to the hospital to fix this immune related AE. It's programs in place to get them in the hospital and get them managed. But we just need to, it's really about patient identification. That person is sick, this person is not sick. And so if you're having an AE where we need to get involved, they need to know to call us and then we kind of take it from there. So I, I think you, you hit on two areas, but I'll maybe just touch on them again that I was going to ask you. One is certainly um, in our profession, we rely on uh, you know allied health members, whether those be APPs or even nurses to help with this whole continuum of care. And it sounds like uh, in your practice, uh, after that first visit, perhaps an APP plays a vital component in in the monitoring, maybe the infusions as well as the, the the sort of the monitoring of the AEs. Is that is that correct? Yes. I mean, there's. I mean, we, we certainly like to be there for the first infusion, but a lot of the subsequent infusions are happening under an APP's watch. Now we have physicians on site if there's a problem, but uh, I don't like to limit them to purely my schedule, and there's no reason they should be. Um, so it opens up the door for scheduling purposes if sometimes the APP can be the administering physician as long as there's a physician on site. Um, and nurses are often our ones placing the IVs. So, and they are often the ones harboring the phone calls from, um, I think I might be having a side effect. So then they kick it up. They have a list of AEs that we're nervous about and they kick those up in a message to the physician to review. So a lot of that monitoring is a team effect from the nurse who's giving the drug, the APP who's potentially scheduling and giving the drug and the physician. And as long as the nurse knows what to, message the physician about, it's kind of three touch points out of, instead of just one touch point, as long as you're not just relying on the physician. And then, you know, as, as we're now going into, you know, another, yet another wave of, of COVID, obviously, you know, telehealth and telemedicine continues to be central there. And you, you sort of brought that up. It, it sounds like you are able to use that platform as a means to perhaps engage with the patients, monitor the patients without having to have them in an office setting with looking at these uh, AEs as sort of touch points is what you mentioned. Is that is that correct? Yes. I mean, I think I think urologists are not used to seeing patients in the office every month. That's just a little bit abnormal compared to our typical schedule of seeing six months, seeing a year. This is a different when you transition into cancer care like this, it's active cancer care. It's it's more like your BCG where you're coming in and getting therapy. It's not a set it and forget it. We'll see in six months. So we have to have those interactions and and telemedicine has been helpful because I don't always have clinic slots available every month, mm -hmm. but telemedicine does at least allow us to do a visual check on, you know, all right, the patient doesn't look as good as I remember them looking in the office last time, or even if it's just a phone call conversation that we, we do an immediate phone call kind of after the infusions the next week, are you having any problems? And, and honestly, I think we probably will get more cavalier with that in the future as we gain kind of comfort level with the fact that it's a very small minority that have issues. But when we launched, it was like, we need to be on the ball and checking with all these patients just to make sure everything is fine. Mm -hmm. Now, do we catch something? Very rarely. But it makes us feel like we have a leg to stand on that we are probably doing more surveillance touch points than our oncologist in town, because they're more comfortable with the fact it's going to happen rarely. They're not being quite as proactive as we are, because the last thing the world we wanted to do was give a medicine and look like we never checked on the patient and then have something sure. go wrong. Um, so I think that's, you just have to think of that culturally in your own geographic area. But we, we decided to kind of err on the side of overcaution at first. And I think we'll probably back off of that as we gain comfort with it. 
So uh, maybe in the last few minutes, we'll talk a little bit, at, at perhaps at a high level of management, right? So we've talked about the infrastructure. We've talked about the importance of recognizing that AEs may occur. Uh, we had a nice discussion just now about different, you know, members of the team as well as platforms that we can continue to have touch points with the patients. So now let's say we have um, a patient who is having an immune-related AE. Um, is there a certain grading system you use and, and what do you do when you have a patient that, that's experiencing one of these events? So I think the first thing is don't feel um, inappropriate if you're reaching out to someone for help and do not feel bad if you immediately jump to the NCCN and pull up their most recent guide for IR-related AEs. Um, I think, honestly, that happens a lot more outside of urology office, so we're not used to thinking like, I'm going to turn to this resource, but in reality, turn to the resource. Um, and so they are grading their fairly standard CTCAE, which is the clinical trials grading system. And that's what you'll see reported for grade one, two, three, and four. NCCN also kind of nicely explains what the definition are. There's apps you can put on your phone that give you the CTCAE grading. If you pull up diarrhea, it'll tell you if you have this many stools a day, that's grade two. If you have this many stools a day, that's grade three. And the reason that's important is the grading really tells you how to manage some of those immune-related AEs. And, and the guidelines are fairly clear. Like the first thing you do is evaluate how bad it is. That's the grading. And then that tells you kind of what you do from there. Is it management just withholding the dose? Is it a low-dose steroid? Is it a high-dose steroid? Um, and from there, it's, it's pretty simple. It's just honestly, if it's bad, you're giving steroids and holding the dose. If it's low, you're just potentially skipping the dose and seeing if it gets better. And that's, you know, from dumbed down neurologist version, that's the easiest thing to do. But the real question is, if it's bad, what, what else do I need to do? And that's the point at which we talk about specialist referral. Don't feel bad about getting endocrinologist involved or GI or cardiology. If they have anything that's weird in that organ system, um, you need to have people in your community that you would feel comfortable reaching out to. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we reach out to them on the front end, like, hey, something looks a little funny with this THS or their, their thyroid levels before we even start medication or they're on a thyroid replacement, do we need to get their endocrinologist involved and at least let them know we're going to start IO therapy in case you want to see them and monitor them. So I'm just not out on an island. Um, but I think that's probably the most important thing from immune related AE management. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? I mean, I, I think it's, it's knowing enough to know what you don't know and then having friends to call and, and, and as, as you sort of probably can attest to, none of us are endocrinologists, none of us are GI specialists or cardiologists, but at least if you recognize that there is somebody in that space that needs to be involved, having the network to be able to provide that care. Is that, that seems like. Yes. And I'm not going to lie and say we've never had a high level AE. We have had high level immune related AEs. We've managed them by the guidelines. I feel comfortable that what we've done has been appropriate. They've been on steroids. We've reached out to the experts who said, yeah, what you're doing is right. But at least it's not just me saying what I'm doing is right. It's hearing it from an endocrinologist or hepatologist. And then the patient feels more comfortable that what we're doing is right. Um, and then from there, we have not had to move to the next level. There's some additional immunosuppressants that are given for specific sort of non-steroid responsive immune-related AEs. And you get in the weeds on those. And honestly, as soon as we're getting to that level, you better have a specialist involved because sure. you're not wanting to give some of those therapies to somebody who may require inpatient monitoring. That's not really what the urologist is supposed to be doing. And honestly, even a medical oncologist is going to get somebody else involved 
because they're not typically admitting a lot of those patients themselves to the hospital. They're sending them to the hospital for management by somebody within the hospital. So I think we just have to be cautious in knowing our limits. Um, but that's, that's fine. That's, that's kind of our role is to at least the high level. And let's be honest, 90% of the people are not going to need any of these things. But if you have one of those patients, you're going to feel very uh, comfortable as long as you know that you're not the only one and there's experts out there to help you. Sure. Um, well, David, first of all, really, uh, thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, very practical. I feel like it de debunked some of the, you know, the, the stigma of, uh, of, you know, how do you actually get this up and running? I mean, we, we see all these articles, as you alluded to, there's always new trials coming out. Uh, and I think ultimately, as urologists, sometimes it can almost be overwhelming uh, with regards to, okay, how do we expand into this? But I really want to thank you for, you know, a very thoughtful way of how to sort of practically incorporate this into the practice. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'd like to thank our audience. If any of you would like any more information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. And uh, David, I wish you and your family happy holidays as to our audience as well. Thank you, Dr. Brown.